Welcome to another edition of the Ancient Paths podcast, Wisdom for Today, where we're discussing issues that are relevant to our modern day, but as well as looking back at wisdom that, that we have access to, the, the holy books, the, the great teachers that we have all come in contact with, and then applying that into our lives and making an impact into our culture and the people we we run into. We are having this discussion as, as a team between me, uh, David and Joseph, and if you'd like to talk a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself. Um, I'm Mikhail Ben Avraham. I am a Baal Teshuvah. Uh, I became observant uh, in 2000, late 2004. Yeah, I've had my ups and downs. Uh, I'm Hasidic, uh, Breslov, uh, and Sephardic. And uh, other than that, let's, let's just get going. Today we will be discussing Jewish health and healing. So um, I've been struggling with a lot of health issues um, since we've spoken and I've been getting really down about them. And I know you have health concerns as well. So we can kind of work through um, how does God and faith help us process all that. And there's the concept that I discussed in the book about people thinking like it's a tit for tat that if you're a bad person, you're going to get all the plagues of Egypt. And if you're a good person, God is going to bless you with health and wealth and all kinds of good stuff. So how do... Uh, religious Jews um, not feel condemned when they're struggling with their health. So we can deal with all yeah. this. I think it's a, it's a mixed bag, right? Like uh, sometimes that is the case. Sometimes it is a, a I don't want to say punishment, but a consequence, right? Like perhaps it could be just a consequence of not washing your hands at the right time. Cleanliness is a mitzvah. So perhaps by f- neglecting that once we get a bacteria or a virus or something and, and then that becomes a consequence. The idea that it's a punishment, it's a divine punishment, I think is, is a little bit askew. It's not entirely false. Sometimes it is entirely false. Um, sometimes as in the case of Yov, you know, it was a test. It had nothing to do with his, his righteousness to begin with. It was a test of whether or not he would stay grounded in his faith, in his amuna. And even that, even though he did do that, he still had to be corrected by Hashem in the end of it because he spoke presumptuously a, few, a couple times. And Hashem was like, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? You know, can you, can you put hooks within Leviathan's mouth and, and draw him around? Can you control him? Can you rein him in? No, you're not powerful enough to control these things. So don't assume that you ever understand the big picture. However, what Yov does consistently is show this unyielding trust in Hashem. He knows that no matter how bad the situation gets, God is just. And even if he doesn't seemingly deserve the situation, that situation strengthens and refines him and creates a new vessel for a greater blessing. 
And I know with Yov's situation, it's, you know, it's represented as like the worst case scenario of like really just about anybody, right? Like his whole family gets wiped out. His wife turns on him and tells him just, you know, curse God and die. His friends come and they're berating him and telling him that it's all his fault. And like through the whole thing, he doesn't relent that God is to be trusted. And so that is the reason that by the end of his story, he receives a double portion of what he had lost. You know, we can get into all the nitty gritty about why would Hashem let his family be wiped out as children. But like when you read the story, they were out partying and, and being debaucherous on their own. Like he prayed for them. He cared for them, but they had made their choices. And so in that case, the consequences of their choices ultimately led to their death, which was corollary to Hasatan testing whether or not he deserved the blessings of God. So I think a lot of times we think that something bad happens as a, as a punishment, and sometimes it's a refinement. Sometimes it's an expansion. If you think about like physical fitness, for example, your muscles cannot grow stronger unless they face resistance. This is a physical law of nature. If you have zero resistance and you never use your muscles, they atrophy and eventually will even die. And then you die. So, shalom, of course. But like, this is, this is the same in the spiritual world. And so I think that a lot of times uh, we feel really guilty. And sometimes, yeah, it might be related to, to something that we've done that we need to make. Uh, that we need to make teshuva, that we need to repent for. But other times it's just for refinement and other times it's for growth. And it takes some discernment and some really deep internal honesty, uh, like just intellectual honesty with ourselves to, to really try and figure out like, am I at a place where I've really, uh, where I've really tried my best to repent? Am I, and of course, that's not even that hard, really. Like, it's a heartfelt turning to God. And, you know, so somebody in, you know, a hospice situation, they don't need to make it to a mikvah to repent. They just need to turn their heart towards God. So if they do that, and then they still are suffering from the illness, at that point, they know that the illness is not a punishment. It may be a, a consequence of things in the past, and it may be something that they'll survive and they'll grow through. And it may be something that is refining their character, working out their patience and growing their virtues. But until they've genuinely sought the situation out from their, their internal awareness and honesty with themselves and God, there's really no way to say. And it's, it's really quite sad when people listen to their, their friends and their peers more than that still quiet voice of Hashem. Like we, we do have to trust in, in our teachers and our peers and our interactions to a certain degree, but those should never, that trust in, in anything created should never override our trust in the creator. Let's start from the beginning. So, so today we're discussing um, the concepts of health, healing, and illness from a 
Jewish biblical Talmudic perspective and there's a lot of misconceptions you know a common theme is is what we're discussing and uh, we've mentioned the life of Job and and how things worked out for him in our previous um, discussion but there's a lot of people that when they get sick they they feel this sense of dread like there's something they they could have done and and you mentioned you know there are consequences or there uh, physical laws or laws of nature that that some religious people would say have to be followed so then you don't end up in whatever situation. But then you have those instances where you have a child or someone who's innocent and hasn't really enjoyed their life and they get struck with horrible illnesses and diseases. And the, the passage that I was quoting about the plagues of Egypt is a passage when the children of Israel are are coming into the promised land and God very harshly says that if you follow his commandments, you will be blessed and you'll have long life and you'll have um, the fruits of the field and things like that. But if you uh, forsake him and you uh, whore after other gods, you would be punished with the plagues and the plagues are the 10 plagues of Egypt or even worse um, things that, that come your way. And some people have interpreted that to mean that illness, that uh, even demon possession in the times of the mystical um, Jewish um, uh, figures, such as Jesus or, or other rabbis, they felt that a lot of illnesses came from uh, demonic forces or God unleashing the devastating angels on you or the angel of death or something your way. Uh, so it has built so almost like a little superstition that, if you do certain things, you automatically are going to receive punishments related to them. But then you see contradictions in the Psalms and, and Proverbs where you have the, the wicked uh, being healthy and prosperous and the righteous suffering. And then there's this sense of, like you said, you, you suffer as a purifying element or as a way to get closer to God. And that type of mortification for me has never been appealing because that's something that you that you you hear from the apostle Paul saying that he has a thorn on his side, and the more he suffers, the more he connects with Jesus. And then you have other monks and mystics throughout the years, you know, hitting themselves or or cutting themselves with with wire or whatever to yeah, uh, that's no bueno. <laughs> to experience the pain of of the martyrs. And it's like, come on, man, like. Uh, my version of, of God, and, and I hate to, to have different views of God, is that he's a good God that they would like for you to be healthy, kind of like Maimonides would say, so you can praise him. If you're all messed up, you don't have the energy to get up and actually worship God. Um, how do you work through all those different things that I just brought up? It's easy. There's no contradiction between any of them. They all are angles of the same truth. So... With, uh, and I don't mean to sound dismissive with the answer, because I'm obviously going to explain, but with the, the wicked prospering, for example, or the innocent child suffering, we are not God. This goes back to what I just said about Yov. He made presumptions about his righteousness in this situation, which Hashem corrected. He didn't say his faith was wrong. Yov was the least rebuked by Hashem out of the four, his three friends and himself. But he was still nonetheless rebuked because Hashem's point was 
he is the one that knows the big picture. He's the one that knows the course. And if you don't understand it, that's fine, but trust him. And so perhaps the wicked prosper because there's no need to refine and test them because they've already given up. And so now they serve as an agent of Sitra Akhra, an agent of Hasatan, to test other humans. And so why would the, the forces of the other side, why would the negative forces of spiritual energy, why would they cause any kind of turmoil in that person's life when that person is aligned with their goals? On the other hand, you have the, the righteous uh, who suffer and you have children who are born into this world and have yet to understand a single thing about sin and righteousness, what a mitzvah even is. They don't know what a commandment is. They don't know what a law is. And you know, they're born with sickle cell anemia or they're born with cancer. You know, or within a short period of time, they develop these things. How do, we, how do we wrap our heads around that? Well, again, we, Judaism especially, doesn't hyper-focus on the afterlife, right? We're a very practical religion in comparison to Christianity uh, that always focuses on the world to come. But we still believe in the world to come. In fact, Maimonides speaks of the resurrection as a mandatory element of our faith. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that an innocent child who suffers through whatever situations is not going to be rewarded greatly in Olam Haba? Or are we just saying that and giving it mouth service, lip service, so that you know we can speak as though we're truly uh like truly believing in the the core values of judaism but deep down inside we still don't believe and so we think that god is unjust by letting these things happen it is a question of trusting hashem all of these things all negative ex experience in life is simply a matter and I, I don't like to you know refer to new testament uh you know, than Christian uh, people. But since you mentioned Paul, that concept is actually reflected in the, in the life of Eliyahu, in the life of Moshe Rabinu. Like, you see them go through the worst possible situations and have the highest possible spiritual experiences. Moshe met with Hashem on a mountain that literally means the mountain of desolation. These aren't coincidences. We really truly believe in Novato that there is none else but God. Nothing has independent existence from him. And everything is flowing in paths according to his will. With a very interesting way for us to have free will, which is definitely too much of a topic for me to introduce in depth here. But we can choose which of the many paths he has carved out. And that becomes our choice and our experience of reality. But all of the paths fulfill his will. And so our free will is real. And paradoxically, he also has pre-planned everything. And if we would trust him, it doesn't take away from pain. It doesn't take away from, from our 
experience of negative things, but it transforms our suffering and elevates it to a place of understanding and growth. And this is what happened to many of the prophets. They, they reached these situations. Look at, uh, look at Yosef. He was in slavery, sold by his own brothers. That's not a good situation. He had every reason to complain, to fetch. But he didn't. He stayed patient and trusted that Hashem's plan would ultimately be fulfilled and would ultimately redeem him and his family. And it did. And we exist, literally, physically, we, you and I, exist because of that faith. It's very interesting. As, as you're saying this, I started thinking about how Moses started out as someone who stutters. And then he was also a leper for a little bit. You know, God gave him leprosy or is that Sar, the, the spiritual Sar, yeah. form of, uh, of ailment. And then um, his wife was, um, was always on his case for not being righteous enough um, when he was heading to Egypt. And then Jethro <laughs> was telling him he didn't know what he was doing. And then the children of Israel uh, betrayed him and he wanted to die. And it's like, so, and, you know, not to disparage Islam, but in Islam, they say that Jesus could have never been crucified because God would never do that to a prophet. And it's like, he did it to all his prophets. Seems a bit ridiculous in light of that. The yeah. only one who, who possibly had an okay life was Abraham. And, um, but then he had a lot of turmoil with his children, his wives, and all the other people. Yeah, I mean, he took Yitzhak up on the mountain and according to uh, at least one midrash sarai sarah sorry rewound too far there in my head sarah died according to one midrash while they were on the mountain of grief that's crazy i mean it's believable because if he discussed what had to be done what he was going to do with her she would have been mad with grief we also notice that in the Torah, Yitzhak and, and Avraham don't speak again after that. Yeah. If we think that just being righteous is supposed to mean that we're going to have an easy, easy life, then we're fooling ourselves. If anything, it means that we're going to have to learn to wrestle with, with difficulties. Hashem's name, Aheya Asher Aheya, means I will be that I will be. And many of the commentators have noted that when he said that, he was saying that no matter what your situation, no matter how dark and how painful and how sad and how depressed things get, I will be with you. Those commentators really rang a bell in my head. And I, it was just like all through history, we see Hashem with us and most profoundly with us in the times when the world turns its back on us the hardest. You know, I, I don't want to dive too deep into the Shoah because it was such a terrible situation and so many people were so torn in how to think and handle the situation. But there were great rabbis that stayed faithful during the whole Shoah up to the point of being killed. And that, I believe, 
is part of the reason that we're giving the land of Israel back before Mashiach. We expected that that would only happen after Mashiach. And there's still Natori Karta and, and uh, you know, other Jewish organizations and uh, even a Hasidic dynasty that still refuse to acknowledge the secular Zionist government of Israel as anything but an evil human government that needs to repl- be replaced by the reign of Mashiach. You know, Natori Karta, I believe, doesn't even allow any of them to live within Israel. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but... Um, you know, the, the, the fact that, that I'm pointing out from this is that they understood that we were supposed to get the land back strictly by the hand of God and that it would be made righteous and it would be the, the biblical theocracy and not a man-made theocracy with an imagined understanding of God, but that there would be a prophetic voice of Mashiach ruling over the land. and and ultimately over the whole world, where Israel itself becomes the Jerusalem of the whole world, and Jerusalem remains the Jerusalem of Israel. This, this sort of hierarchy of spiritual energies, like expanding out from that point, from the navel of the earth. But instead, for some reason, in the heavenly courts, it was decreed and on the earthly courts with the UN and the Balfour Declaration and all of that, to let us go back home. That's pretty remarkable considering the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years that people have tried to exterminate the Jewish people. And I believe truly that there was a connection to that happening to the the merit of those great rabbis who wouldn't lose their faith no matter how bad the Nazi scum got. I don't think that that was the sole reason, but I think it played a role. And for those not familiar with what we're talking about, um, the Mashiach means the, the Messiah, or in some circles they, they think of it more as a, as a concept uh, versus an individual. So it's kind of like both when when you talk about the the spirit of Mashiach being over um, the world or over Jerusalem and, and the Jewish people, but this idea of um, being um, mistreated by others, there was at one point when they returned from the exile uh, and they were compiling the Torah. There was this idea that the the enemies of Israel were agents of God. And that they brought uh, destruction as a sign of, um, you know, punishment. And I've heard some rabbis um, claim that there is some of that that happened in the Holocaust. And they'll blame uh, the Sabbatean movement and their descendants or secularism or some kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is part of biblical theology, but it doesn't go far enough to contend with the things that we're mentioning where it's an unjust or uh, on um, the word is uh, unjustifiable um, source of pain as compared to your actions. Cause that's one of the biggest things that atheists will throw at Christians is, is like the concept of hell. Why would a just God um, force you to 
to pay for a thousand years or more for something you you did in your in your puny life and we discussed this in a previous conversation but the same would go where nothing from what happened in the Holocaust has a correlation with anybody's uh, poor behavior or lack of religious commitment or whatever, because it was atrocious. And when I had a professor of mine say that the Holocaust proved uh, God's lack of existence or lack of interest in humanity, I told him the Holocaust really proved the wickedness of man and the ability for man to be so corrupt that none of the values or concepts that are uh, defined in the Torah are of value. So why pin it on God when humans were the ones who did it? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, this is a, I've, I've, I've discovered that nuance gives you the ability to see how seemingly contradicting viewpoints are actually complementary. And I see that, of course, Hashem responds to prayers and sin. It, it, that is absolutely biblical, right? Like, and of course, we see that, you know, with, for example, um, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Cheddar Leomor and, and, so, and so on and so on, and all of these other uh, pagan kings who brought terrible, terrible death and punishment down on Israel collectively. And we see them as, according to the words of the prophets, agents of Hashem. As you mentioned, we see that Hashem says, because you're being wicked, I am sending this your way. But if you will repent, then I'll turn it away. But that is only one part of the picture. There's also all of this stuff that we were just talking about, about refinement, about growth, about testing, about, you know, everything else other than punishment. And so it's a mixture. This is what I meant by it's a mixed bag. You know, these things don't happen for one specific reason usually. There's usually a conflation of multiple reasons that merge together and give it the, enough spiritual energy to take on a physical form. And when we're talking about humans being wicked to one another, the free will component is always involved. Uh, even with Pharaoh, when it says that Hashem hardened his heart, he had already made the decision. Hashem only strengthened the decision. He didn't force him to believe something. It was something that Pharaoh was already intent on, and Hashem just made him even more resistant to the miracles of the plagues. Because if you decide that you don't want to listen, then he'll send delusion. He'll send, uh, you know, spirits that will confuse you like he did with Shaul. Shaul was full of grief and, and anger about David. Why? David wasn't trying to steal his throne. Even after David was anointed, David didn't touch Shaul. He cut off a piece of his cloak in a cave to prove to the, to, to the man that I could have killed you. I am not interested in taking your throne. I recognize your anointing. Even though you have become wicked, I'm not trying to take it from you. I just want you to realize that I, I genuinely love you. David loved him. We don't 
too often we want to see something from a direct point of view. We, we only want to see things out of one eye. But we have two eyes because it gives us stereoscopic vision. And spiritually, too often people have one eye closed, and so they have no depth perception. They fail to grasp that there is many angles that need to be looked at. In, in Kabbalah, it speaks about how with every passage of the Torah and every word of Hashem, we have to take it and turn it around as many ways as we can possibly examine the thing. And this is what gives us a greater understanding of, of the truth of a thing. This is what gives us an understanding of the secret of a thing. Not by simply reading the surface. The surface is foundation, and anything that comes after shouldn't contradict that. But if that's all we ever understand, then our perspective and our wisdom are extremely limited. At no point in the Torah does it say, only use these written words, you know, like the, the, the Karaites and, and, and uh, the Christians who denounced the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral law, the, the Torah of the mouth. The idea that there is no deeper explanation that comes along with the text the idea that the, everything is just black and white, these are false ideas. Do you think, like, often working as a chaplain, I, I talk to people about how before God revealed himself to the world through um, Sinai, or even if you look at the other monotheistic religions that come from the Middle East, before they came about, there was a disregard for human life and that disregard for human life was very similar to what the Nazis did, where if someone was sick, if somebody was um, disabled or had limited uh, cognitive um, abilities, that they would be tossed aside. They would be mm -hmm. killed and they had no purpose in the eyes of the Roman empire or the eyes of the Babylonians or any other group of that time. And if it hadn't been for God showing compassion to Abraham when he was circumcised, or God showing compassion to um, even um, Miriam when she, she received the, the illness and then he, uh, Moses prayed and gave her uh, healing, or any other character who was given um, some type of relief from their ailments, and then you got the story of the good Samaritan that goes out of his way to bring healing someone that was beat up and left for dead. That without those stories, without that teaching, there wouldn't be any hospitals. There wouldn't be hospice uh, care or palliative care or any type of uh, relief agency that does medical care because it's part of God's nature to be merciful and to care for the orphan and the widow and the infirm, that if, if that hadn't made an impact on the, on the believers of all three monotheistic uh, faiths, uh, Abrahamic faiths, that the world wouldn't have created uh, this compassionate system of, of agencies that, that provide healthcare. Um, do you see it the same or was it already part of uh, Greco-Roman and other cultures that maybe the, the people who were more educated or had more understanding had those, those values 
uh, as compared to what we hear from the pagan kingdoms being very ruthless and, and careless about those in need. Yeah, they, they were definitely ruthless. Um, not necessarily quite as bad as uh, sometimes portrayed, but pretty bad. Um, but they, they had some value for human life. Nowhere near what Judaism and, and uh, the Abrahamic faiths really emphasized. Um, and uh, I don't want to speak negatively, but you know, Christianity and Islam definitely fell off the wagon there uh, a couple of different times in history uh, where they didn't care about human life unless it was their own. Um, you know, with, with Judaism, if we, if we look back, just to be slightly defensive here uh, before anybody can say anything, if we look back at the, the commands to slay, for example, all of Amalek, you know, again, we can't completely understand that, but it wasn't something that, you know, the, the king of Israel was even wanting to do. This wasn't like my emotion, my will, I'm going to go rage and conquer the world. It was never uh, the, the motivation of, uh, of Israel or of Judah when the kingdom was divided. Um, instead, it was this group is so utterly wicked and unrepentant that I, have, I Hashem, have decreed that there to be wiped out. And the thing is, he knew that we wouldn't do it. It's not like we could keep a secret from him. Um, and so he knew that that wasn't going to get fulfilled and that ultimately it would lead to Amalek assimilating and merging into the world and creating groups like the Nazis, who I firmly believe are the spiritual ancestry or, or uh, rather progeny of Amalek. And uh, we, can, we can see that pop up here and there. And uh, the thing is, we know, according to Halacha, we can't fulfill that commandment anymore because we have no way of identifying them. These, these, uh, this might get me some flack, but undead souls. They're, they're basically not living. They're not alive. They've never, they're, they're almost like demons, incomplete in their creation. And the thing is, they brought it on themselves by their choices. It was not like demons who were created incomplete. Uh, and this is, you know, of course, mystical stuff that uh, probably deserves its own episode. But um, as far as, you know, how do we reconcile human wickedness with the plans of God, it, it, it's hard. And we can only usually do it in retrospect. Unless you're a Navi, unless you're a prophet, you can't really say this is why it's happening. All we can do is remain filled with faith and trust in Hashem. And that, when we really have that locked in, nothing that happens, you know, a diagnosis of cancer, a tumor eating through your mouth, uh, you know, nothing, that happens, no matter how bad, can, can strip us away from that internal peace. I, I see a lot of people who struggle with that as they face their mortality, uh, especially within the last year with COVID and everything. And I've seen a lot of people get sick and a lot of people start panicking immediately. And it's, it's completely human and it's completely expected and it's completely normal 
to feel that kind of uncertainty and fear. But then I've also seen a lot of great rabbis that I've that I'm that I was friends with who got sick with it and ultimately died from it. And the whole time that they were dying, not once did a doubt express that, uh, escape their lips. Not once. Not once did they did they seem uncertain or fearful. So what makes their experience different from the person who, as soon as they get diagnosed, is filled with terror? What do you think makes the difference? Well, we've talked about this where in the Breslev or some Hasidic circles, um, everything is for good and you have this complete um, acceptance and faith that, you know, God will make it work out or, or is some, somehow God will be glorified through it. And uh, for me, it's very difficult to, to accept that or to, to go with that thinking. And then what I tell people when I'm counseling them as in their last days or they're dealing with something very difficult is that I believe we have the ability to overcome the biggest challenges. But it's, it takes a team of people, like a lot of support and a lot of processing to come to terms with these challenges. Because if you just make it, well, you know, it's God's will and you just have to like go along, it, it's almost like that thing that, that really bothers me about some uh, evangelical groups that say, well, if you don't forgive even the worst assassin and, and terrible person, dictator and, and um, genocidal maniac, mm -hmm. then you're not spiritual enough because Jesus set the standard so high, you have to follow behind him. And these rabbis do the same. They put this, you know, the standard is to be uh, like Jeremiah and just, you know, go along and, and serve God to the greatest capacity. And it, it creates, you know, self-condemnation. You're not even feeling condemned by God. You feel condemned by yourself for not being that uh, faithful and that spiritually awakened. And some of us don't have that. Some of us need um, a different set of ideas to help us through these other than the, you know, trying to cover the sun with, with your finger. God, God has your back. You just, you know, if you don't go along, then there's something wrong with you. So, so the, uh, to respond to that, I would bring up the fact that Israel is not monolithic. Our altars were not monolithic. The patriarchs, sometimes they had a single stone set up as an altar. But once we became Israel, you'll notice that all of the altars became made of multiple stones. The symbolism of this is to tell us that we are not a monolith. We are, we do, no one of us has a monopoly on truth or perspective or anything. We each represent the spark of the divine in its place, and that place is us individually. And so for somebody who struggles to have that degree of amuna, they're developing. 
that feeling of self-condemnation should be transformed into a desire to reach that point. Not, woe is me, I can't reach it, but I wish I could. I wish I could have that peace. I wish I could have that trust. On the flip side, the, the, the ones who have that degree of trust and faith, it only seems like there's no line in the sand. There absolutely is. And for example, uh, we rewind 2,000-ish years, a little less than, to the Jewish wars with Rome. And we see some of the greatest sages involved in war. We see that throughout the Torah as well. We see that throughout the, the, the prophets as well. How could these great righteous people who have absolute blind faith in, and trust in God also see a need to war against injustice? It's because there is a line in the sand. There is a point where a person says enough is enough. This is not tolerable. The thing is, when the decree seems to come from heaven, for example, viruses and illnesses, uh, you know, it, again, it goes back to uh, intellectual honesty, prayer, and repentance. If you've done all, your, all you can to, to make things right with God, there should be no fear. But sometimes a person's not at that point. They're simply not spiritually grown like a plant. You know, the, 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 the Torah compares us to trees. Hasidut compares us to trees. Kabbalah compares us to trees. Even uh, the, 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 the Christian stuff compares us to trees. What is it about a tree? When a seed is planted, the seed has to dissolve into itself. It breaks down before it actually becomes a plant. And when it breaks down, it first dissolves into the soil it's buried in, and part of it becomes the, the sprout, and part of it becomes the root system. Part of it always remains under the ground, and part of it searches out for the warmth of the sun on top of the soil. And it struggles within itself to get through that soil and reach that warm spot where it finally can see and experience the direct light of the sun and actually begin to grow and truly flourish and then bloom and blossom. Not everybody is planted at the same time. Not everybody's planted in the same soil. It's not fair for anyone to judge themselves according to another person. If, if all of us looked at Moshe Rabbeinu, as what we all should be. And really, ultimately, we should. Like, we should reach that stage. But if we judge ourselves where we are right now, and we're like, oh, I'm so far from that. Like, I don't deserve anything. Like, I'm so wicked. I'm so evil. We could really get into a point where we're just completely self-destructive. But if we just accept where we are and make the conscious decision to keep growing, keep valuing life, keep trying to live and keep trying to grow closer to Hashem, that is what ultimately leads to the development of this spiritual vessel of, of unyielding faith. 
if we want to use escapism, uh, like uh, people who struggle with addictions, that's our choice. But then the consequences of those addictions come. And what, what are the consequences of, of developing this, this intense imuna? Well, peace. Even in the middle of agony, having peace, calm. And I'm not saying I'm a sadic. I'm far from it, but like, I'm trying. I'm in a lot of pain right now. My chronic elbow injury from stupid martial arts accident and my neck injury have been flaring up so badly. And it, it's not great. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> like, but it's not going to rob me of my peace or my joy or my trust in Hashem. It might make me stop and think, you know, can I do this next thing that I wanted to do? Probably not because my arm or my neck are killing me. It might also make me stop and think, I wonder why my neck. But then I start getting into mystical stuff and like, I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the, the point is that even our ailments can become a, a point of self-contemplation and growth if we handle, handle them in a way that allows that. But if we're constantly looking at them as, as if Hashem is unjust, then we're not going to grow through it. In fact, we might devolve from it. And that's the testing aspect. That's the aspect of Hasatan saying, okay, Hashem, I, I see that he, you've protected this person to, in this way, that way, and that way. But why don't you remove some of that and let me test their character and see if they really deserve those blessings? Have they really merited it? And of course, Christianity is all about, you know, uh, grace and nobody earns anything. Uh, but this is, this is Judaism. We, we don't believe that grace works quite that way. We absolutely do believe in grace, and you don't hear us talk about it much because Christians kind of stole the word and misappropriated. But grace is the very fact that we exist. When, when I was a Christian, I remember the word uh, was defined unmerited favor. Creation did not merit existence. Yeah. We didn't deserve to exist. Hashem simply chose to create us. That's grace. Everything else is a balance of that and his mercy. In the last 10 minutes, uh, let's, let's talk about what's going on right now because for a lot of people, they need encouragement and they need some type of way of making sense of it. So the latest estimates is that we're going to have the coronavirus in maybe even increasing in, in its um, scope in the next seven years for herd immunity to take hold with everybody getting vaccinated and the vaccines actually catching on as the strands are mutating and getting more powerful. Mm -hmm. So one way that I make sense of things like this is a book that I read called Creation and the Persistence of Evil by John D. Levinson. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but in that book, he talks about how the biblical narrative is about um, 
God hovering over the chaos. Uh, if you look at the creation myths from the Babylonians, it's a lot of monsters and, and deities fighting each other. And just like the Greeks uh, committing adultery and betraying each other and things like that. And mm -hmm. the biblical deity is a deity that brings order and and peace and uh, and goodness to the the creation that seems to be in turmoil. Um, so his premise is something that resonates with me that it's not that God is cruel or that God is the one who brings about all these plagues and all these diseases and illnesses that, that affect us, is that the world is imperfect and he brings about healing and he brings about um, a way of restoring and bringing back things to what they intended to be. So as we gear up for another seven years of this horrible experience that has taken a lot of the joy out of life, um, in some ways has made us uh, resilient to be able to find creative ways to, to thrive or, or to survive, you know, either through technology or closer, fam closer to our loved ones and the people around us not being so distracted with uh, the, the hustle of life, but has also created a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. Um, is that a good approach to take that in a sense, you know, you talk about being reflective in your illness and being able to consider the, how this is making you a better person or, or more contemplative. Um, approach to to these challenges but how do we is seeing the world as cruel and the illnesses that plague us as almost like these foreign objects that we're fighting and then god is the it's, it's kind of like god is the astronaut that walks into the alien world and he's shooting the the aliens and and pacifying them so then people can create life and, and, and build a colony there. Is, is that a, a good uh, analogy or is it this other approach that a lot of religious people take where everything's wonderful, everything is beautiful. Even if you get run over by a car, that's a blessing. And when it all comes down to it, uh, like we spoke in, uh, in one of our last uh, sessions, it's all an illusion. It's all you being bitter and hateful because you're not willing to grow. And I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work for me. <laughs> Why are they mutually exclusive positions? There you go. Judaism is always about tension and, and polar uh, things, um, fighting with each other and not just one or the other. Yeah. It, the thing is, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. They, they can both be true, but from different vantage points. For the one who has the, that, that perfected imuna, the perfected faith, that view of everything, no matter how bad it looks, is actually good, is entirely true. And frankly, I believe that that is the more, more accurate, the, the sharper version of the truth. But for the person that isn't there yet, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't work because they're not there yet. And so they have growth to deal with. And for that, 
they absolutely are wrestling against external forces, whether viruses or wicked people, or if you even want to get into the, to the metaphysical, spiritual stuff, uh, you know, demons and evil angels, which are not the same thing again. You know, I mentioned that before, just making sure it's clear here. You know, these, these negative spiritual entities, they absolutely are against us. The name Satan literally means adversary. That's his job. We had a whole episode on that. So these forces, yeah, they're there. And they're against us. And they will try their best to push us to think that things are unjust. And from our, from our point of view, trapped within the moment, it may well be unjust. And it may be an unjust situation in which another person who is able to help is meant to give tzedakah to rectify the situation and make it righteous, which is literally what tzedakah means, to make something righteous, to fix the broken thing. It's the most physical, tangible way of, of tikkun that I know. And it doesn't always have to be money. It's just helping somebody rectify a, a situation that is unjust by the very nature of this world. Why is this world this way? Well, because when we were all in the collective soul of Adam and Chava, we chose this. We had two trees we could have chosen. The tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We chose the latter. And now our world has been giving us a taste of good and evil. And we get to choose how we perceive all of it. If we fixate on the good and draw closer to the good, ultimately it leads to all good. If we're fixated on the physical, on the distraction, then we're trapped. We have to pray, we have to be honest with ourselves, we have to be honest with God, and we have to really seek Him. And I believe that no matter where somebody's background is from, uh, somebody born into you know, a strict atheist, like militant, hard, strong atheist family, uh, and at some point they just come to these, these initial insights that maybe God's real, and they begin to contemplate and really seek, they're, they're fine. As long as it's genuine and honest and they're truly seeking and they're truly trying to, to better their character and refine themselves, they are fine. The Christian ideas of hell are not Jewish. They're invented. They're taken from, from Greco-Roman mythology for the most part. For us, the concept of hell is absolutely, once again, for refinement. We don't believe that God is going to take somebody that, I don't know, didn't uh, pray three times a day and got hit by a bus and send them to hell forever. It's absurd. Why would he even create us for that? Like, that's a malevolent and angry and evil God, and I want nothing to do with such a God. Yeah. If that's blasphemy, so be it. 
because the God that I know is absolutely nothing like that, though he's frequently misportrayed to be like that. Maybe next time we can do, um, you know, what God has been portrayed as and what God is based on, on the revelation of Sinai through the prophets and the, and the sages. Um, one subject that we, we haven't dealt with that we promised to talk about last time is legislating morality and all the issues that come with that. So we'll, we'll pick the conversation up next time to discuss that and also go to, because it, it, it goes back to this false notion that God is a, an angry judge or some type of a tyrant. uh, yeah. uh, tyrannical um, accountant who's keeping tabs of everything that we do to build a case against us. So he's, he's, he's a prosecutor, accountant, judge, and jury. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not helpful. Like, wow. even if, if God ever portrayed himself like that, that'd be a sad existence to try to serve someone like that because you would feel mm -hmm. that uh, you can never live up to the expectations. But there are some groups that use that as like the, oh, yeah. the punchline, like, because God is like that, then you need this to fulfill his demands. Fear is a powerful tactic for controlling people. I think that's where, where I'll leave my words off for this one. <laughs> and, and fear of being sick or, or dying a terrible death or living a miserable life can also uh, hold you back. And there's been a lot of research on how some type of uh, prayer, meditation, spiritual counseling can help ease all those fears and all those uh, hang-ups that get in the way of healing and get in the way of living, uh, you know, true quality of life uh, when someone is ill or has a terminal illness or something that chronic pain or things that they're not able to overcome. So um, we're going to... Um, keep uh, pursuing these subjects and it's heavy stuff, but stuff that needs to be discussed. And again, uh, thank you for, for having this, this ongoing conversation about these very important topics. We're going to leave it there for this uh, round of, of, of the discussion related to the existence of God. And we have uh, other interesting topics coming up where we'll discuss, you know, where does uh, Jewish identity come from and, and can anybody claim it? Uh, what are Jewish views of, of demonology and other mystical uh, perspectives? And most of all, we want to hear from the people listening to this podcast. You know, tell us what, what are the things that, that draw attention to you? And, you know, we're welcoming people from all different backgrounds, but there's this, this sense of um, knowing your own um, understanding of God. I, I feel that there's a lot of miseducation or, or misinformation going around and, and also a, a lack of intellectualism or the desire to, to grow even more and, and go deeper into these subjects. So um, we, we want to make sure that, that these topics are, are covered in a deep way and that we keep, um, you know, researching and learning new things so then we, we don't become those, those arrogant people who think they have it all figured out. It's all a work in progress, and, and we're part of that. Absolutely. So thank you for, for listening to, to the first edition of Ancient Paths. And uh, in the future, we're going to discuss how we can help people connect with these resources uh, with our background and with our um, 
you know, our journeys, we hope that, that we can encourage other people to, to connect with the, the uh, wisdom as well. Shalom, shalom, everyone. Shalom, shalom.